Welcome to the Q. Conversations in digital media. This podcast is brought to you by Q1 Media. Digital campaign execution and optimization since 2004. Our next episode is queued up and ready to roll. Thank you for listening. You're in the queue. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Q1 Media. Q1 Media partners with agencies and brands all across the nation for all their digital marketing needs, whether it's CTV, OTT, location-based mobile device ID targeting, search engine marketing, targeted display, any research and data that you need, whatever it is, Q1 Media can help with your marketing efforts. Please check out Q1 Media's website at q1media.com. That's Q, the number one, media.com. You can view case studies, examples of our work, uh, or just check out more episodes of the podcast, The Q, Conversations in Digital Media. This episode of the podcast was an interesting one. We really enjoyed it. Hopefully you guys do too. We had Andy Johnson and Chandis Quill on the show and they're with ALC, which is a big data company. And honestly, they came from massive data companies in the past, Experian, uh, Axiom. And it's just interesting to talk to them about the changes in data and how to apply that data for their clients. Also just, you know, the the type of cultures and environments they've been able to work in and help build organization and really good synergy within departments within an operation. So if you're a business person in the data space, which I guess we all are these days, um, or you're just a person who's just interested in the type of data that's out there and that the changes will be happening, this is definitely a good podcast for you. Again, this is uh, Andy and Chandis with ALC and you're in the queue. Thanks, Andy Chandis, for joining us here on the queue. Uh, first of all, I want to ask you, you, you've been here in Austin for quite some time. Mm-hmm. Um, what's your favorite part about Austin? Maybe what's your favorite food? I actually wanted to ask Andy this. Cause so uh, the thing that you hear about Texas is about the queso. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it, it never ceases to amaze me no matter where you go for queso. It's always better than the last place you had it. I know. Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. Chandis, have you had a chance to, to try any of the queso yet? Not yet. I had guacamole at lunch today, though. Oh, and good. We, and it was, you know, it rivaled California guacamole, I will say. That's <laughs> Oh, that's very oh, for yeah. You to say that, that's yeah. actually a pretty big deal. Um, and I know we're in Texas, and there's all this stuff, so you don't want to be run out of the rooms. <laughs> so you are you live in California. Where in California do you yeah, live? Yeah, I live in Southern California, in Orange oh, cool. County. Nice. Uh-huh. Nice. How yeah, long have you been there? Uh, forever. Oh, wow. Yeah, actually, since six months old on, I've been in California. Wow, okay, okay. Yeah. So always, so you're not one that left and then came I did a to small Austin. stint in South Florida for about a year and a half in oh, cool. uh, Boca, near Miami, uh, and then went back to California. Nice, nice. Haven't left. How was it growing up in Southern California? It was great. Yeah. Skiing, beach, yeah. you know, the California dream, it's true. <laughs> it is really everything they, they say it is. Yeah, I mean, you can do a lot of stuff there because the weather's so nice, you know. Yeah. But, uh, it's a great place to live. That's we were, good. As we were talking about earlier, it's expensive, but it's, I wouldn't trade it for the world. When I travel and come back there, I'm always happy to be home. Yeah, there's nothing yeah. like it. And you're from the Midwest, Andy. Yeah, Ever- Nebraska. Yeah. Originally. Nebraska, Nebraska. Yeah. So Omaha. Omaha is where we moved from. Yeah. Oh, okay. So born and raised. Um, that's how I got my start in the data business was in, in Omaha. But yeah, my wife's from Iowa. I'm from Nebraska. Um, 
we uh, we are farmers, you know. Yeah. We, we like to reap what we sow. We you know get our fingers dirty, all that kind of stuff. But um, we were drawn to Texas. Uh, when we came down here to visit, we just found that the Midwestern sensibility existed. But you also got all the wonderful things that Chandis was talking about: California, great weather. Um, Austin, in particular, is really family friendly, as you guys know. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't go. There's no place you can't go without your kids, uh, and everybody's extremely welcoming. You know, all the restaurants have like play areas and stuff like that. And we just we've just seen our kids really blossom since we came down here. So I think we're in here at least for the long haul until they're out of high school. That's good. Yeah, yeah no, it's good to hear. And you've been here for three years, which officially right. makes you an Austinite because yeah, you right. really don't have to be here too long because yeah. <laughs> everybody's a transplant. That's right. That's right. Um, you mentioned growing up in Nebraska, you know, the farmer aspect and, you know, what you ended up in the data side. I mean, what made you get into that, that side of the, or what interested you in the, in an early age? You know, it's, it's a, it's a funny little story, but it, it really wasn't about the data. It was just like a lot of people. I needed a job, right? Yeah. Came out of college. I needed to make a car payment. And I went to work for this, uh, little data company out of Omaha. Um, now go by the name of info group is then American business information. And, um, I was selling sales leads on a map, right? These little 16 by 20 sheets of paper on one side, it would have a map. On the other side, it would have all of the different businesses in that particular geography listed with the contact name and their address, what type of business they're in. So if you were a door-to-door type salesperson, which you did in the 90s, you could actually plan out how it is you were gonna walk in and who you talked to throughout the day. And what I learned during that process was really this marketing thing is just about the overlays of geography, movements of data and people connected to that data. Uh, it was really kind of a cool way to, to get into this data business was through geographic information systems. That's kind of how I got my start. That's interesting. Yeah, GIS is a huge part of, you know, I mean, success for a lot of businesses, but what did, uh, I guess, were you using a system back then or were you just simply, was it all through Excel? Like, I don't know, what, what, what were you using to get that yeah, stuff out? It was, it was uh, you know, there were, there were these mapping software programs that still exist today, like Navtech. Mm-hmm. Um, so you'd have a GIS software. Um, you would uh, layer the data into it, like through an Excel spreadsheet. And mm-hmm. those layers would come together where you could map the data and the points of interest to the map. And, and strangely, that's, that's actually how I got into the digital data business as well. Um, somehow Microsoft uh, got connected to this little paper, 11 by 17, I guess is what it, the size of it was, paper product. And they said, you know, what we'd like to do is we'd like to take our version of a CD-ROM that you put, load onto your desktop of maps, and we'd like you to overlay all of your point of interest data into that same program. So they had a box. It was Streets USA, I think is what it was called, Microsoft Streets USA. Our product was Yellow Pages USA. You'd load one CD-ROM into your computer, and it would put the map into it, and then you'd load the other, and it would put the points of interest, and that way if you're going on vacation, you could know where how to find your hotel, something like that. And that is ultimately, and people I think paid 50 bucks for that, something like wow. that. Yeah, it was like 50 bucks, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> and the thing is, that then became what we now know as, as like MapQuest or Waze. Mm-hmm. You know, it's this combination of, of data sets. That's how I got into it was 
seeing that if you can make data interact with some form of an overlay, whether it be people data, whether it be media, whether it be an understanding of the audience, that those points of connection actually allow you to get greater insights and, and you know, help you plan your day. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, when you said CD-ROM, I think there's a lot of millennials who probably wouldn't know, about it, know <laughs> yes. what that. People yeah. under the age of 30 are not going to understand what that is. No, that's is. for sure. For sure. Uh, and Chandice, how did you get, was there anything in particular that got you into the data side or was... Started off in high school. Well, my friends wanted to be, you know, doctors and scientists and nurses and things like that. I wanted to be a marketer, so mm -hmm. I actually knew I wanted to do marketing. Um, and so I went to college and got my degree in business and marketing. And then uh, my first job out of college was working for a healthcare software company as a marketing coordinator. And then just went down the whole product marketing. Um, and marketing communications route. And then I ended up, how I got into the data world was I got recruited to run the corporate marketing department at Experian. Mm -hmm. um, and Experian obviously was a data company. And so that's how what I What year was that? What, uh, that was in the late 90s? Yeah, 1999, yeah. 2000. Wow. Yeah. And so ran corporate marketing there and then um, through various, you know, reorganizations, which big companies do on a regular basis, yeah. um, ended up in the product organization for the marketing services business, which was the, you know, the business that did data products and database marketing and mm -hmm. analytics for clients. And the rest is history, really. Do you feel, I mean, I've, the analytics side, you know, working with clients, do you feel that there's always some, like a learning curve there? Are you constantly educating your your clients back then and then trying to get them to understand exactly how to use the data and how to understand it? Yeah, actually, I mean, that is always uh, an important part of it is helping clients figure out what to use and how to use mm -hmm. it. And then there's always the evolution of different technologies. You know, we were just this morning at something talking about AI. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, it's been an interesting industry to be in because it's constantly changing. Yeah. What would you say has changed the most since you got into the space? Uh, I would say it's the it, it's technology that's driven yeah. the change. So whether it's going from and we can talk about this, but you know, direct mail to you know programmatic advertising and digital yeah. advertising, to you know, uh, very kind of slow big databases to much more nimble real time based technology. I mean, mm -hmm. I think technology has really driven a lot of the change. Yeah, it's just like anything else. Um, it, things used to move very slowly. Now they move very quickly, near real time. So. 30 years ago, I guess it was just about that when I started, if you could deliver a file to a client once a quarter, maybe even once every six months, I mean, to them, that was you know, rapid movement of data in a big data environment. Now, if you're not doing it you know, in milliseconds, you know, you're, you're simply behind the curve, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so. that's insane. So I guess what, I mean, technology obviously increased, you know, and the art society's changed everything yeah. so immediate. You need that yeah. immediacy. Um, is it diff more difficult to keep up with um, and you know deliver on that, or is it? Is it Not really. Yeah. Um, that's that's the thing that I think is a little surprising to everyone, is that as long as you're willing to move and make changes, just like anybody else, right? You know, if if you're willing to get on a new phone and try a few of the apps on the phone, it's pretty easy to learn it. the The problem is that most companies aren't willing to change. Mm -hmm. They're not willing to reinvent themselves, reinvent their culture question their technology, question the way they do things. 
Um, that's at least the challenge we've seen in the various companies that we've been in the past is that is that it's not only cultural bias, but it's that you know the technical debt that comes along with that. Most people aren't willing to challenge that. Hmm. And if you're willing to challenge that and embrace the change and think about what's going to happen three years from now, um, that's that's really not a difficult thing to to um, execute on. Interesting. So and, yeah, so go I ahead. was just going to say if you don't change on a regular basis, then you get in our stock with a lot of that you know, legacy infrastructure, and then you can't not only, you know, maybe in some cases people don't want to change or know how to change, but you can't afford to change. Mm. It's too big of an investment and cost mm. to, to catch up. So I think staying nimble and staying agile is really the, the way of the future. It's interesting. I guess, how do you implement that type of culture or operation? I mean, I know you've done and worked with several different companies and had to, to maybe, it's, it can be an uphill battle. Yeah. <laughs> You know, the, the first step is always um, getting people comfortable with being uncomfortable, right? And that starts generally with helping define the problem that you're trying to solve. If, they, if people know what it is they're marching toward and they, have, they feel like, okay, we have a strategy, uh, we have a direction, we have leadership who is going to stick to that strategy and direction and you kind of help them along the way, people are okay with it typically. What they don't like is when you know the strategy changes every three or six months or every couple of quarters you have new management teams come in we're actually going through that a little bit right now with our our new company is is that we're we're educating everyone on this is where the world's going the world's going to a digital ecosystem to a digital footprint it's going to be the combination of the known and anonymous realms mm -hmm. and what we've noticed is that as people have gotten uncomfortable they've asked more questions and as they ask more questions they get comfortable with that discomfort, and that's when the growth happens. Interesting. Yeah, explain a little bit what, what you're doing with ALC and, and the type of work you're doing. Absolutely. I'd love to hear about. Yeah, ALC, uh, we're a 40-year-old we're a 40 40 year company. Um, we have, you, you, you see this right now where people talk about data monetization is this new thing, you know, mm -hmm. monetize your data, um, activate on your data. We've been doing that for 40 years. Um, so that's the core of our company is helping, we do a little bit of what Q1 does as well, where we consult with our clients to help solve for their marketing programs. We've been doing that for many decades, um, but ALC um, in the last year has pivoted their business to take those clients that we've worked with to say, you have challenges outside of the realm in which you've typically worked, which is direct mail, typically. Mm -hmm. And you need to be able to solve for you know, conquest marketing, um, for digital conversion, for the movement of data across the known and the anonymous realm. And we're gonna be the company that helps you solve for all these barriers that are limiting your ability to conquest new customers in these digital realms. Are there particular clients that, you're, or that you work with, like particular verticals and sectors of business? Well, we work across the, the spectrum, mm -hmm. but we typically are pretty strong with um, uh, nonprofits, mm -hmm. retail, um, financial services. People have a lot of databases. That's right. Mm -hmm. That's right. Um, a lot of direct response marketers. But we, where we've gone in the recent past is with these digitally native vertical brands. Uh, you, are you familiar with the term? Yeah. 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 So um, um, companies that have a footprint and started without ever having a start a storefront right um, and they they typically have have gotten customers through some of the biggest media platforms like Facebook typically and 
at some point their their cost per acquisition of every customer you know outweighs the lifetime value of that customer so we work with about a hundred of those and help them find new customers across different platforms in digital media and offline yeah it's interesting that offline works really well for them yeah. so it's a, almost a reverse case you know we yeah. have direct mail clients we're trying to take into the omni-channel world and then you have these digitally native brands that started online with social media and others who actually are finding adding in direct mail is really effective. Yeah, I mean, you've it's interesting even watching, I, I'm a cord cutter, I like a lot of um, people out there, I'm not the only one, but uh, a lot of brands are starting to go to traditional, or traditional means television that started, they were solely app-based, solely, solely digital, you know, native, like you said, but or grew organically or content-based and now it's it's insane how they're adding in the other fold. So you're basically working on two fronts mm -hmm. yeah. to really kind of make a cohesive uh, organization, obviously a marketing um, strategy to, to go yeah. forward. Yeah, most, most data companies, they live in one realm, typically. Mm -hmm. um, many of them that, um, that you would know of um, started in the 80s or 90s, uh, kind of like Chandis and I did. Um, and they've, they've migrated a bit to um, online channels, but they're rooted in the offline world typically, and they're mostly rooted in legacy technology. You know, that, that technical debt, those server farms and server stacks and, and code that somebody wrote in 1998 or in 2009 that they don't, know, they don't have any requirements from, they don't know how to reverse engineer it, so they gotta keep that business going. Um, and then you have this new world of companies that you know, are in ad tech, uh, software as a service companies, SaaS companies, and they understand the anonymous realm, but very few can walk back and forth between both. And when you're talking to a marketer, they're, they're not an online advertiser or an offline advertiser, an online marketer, an offline marketer. They, what they are is they're trying to have a conversation with a person wherever that person is at that point in time. Mm -hmm. That's what they're trying to do. And when you talk to them about online versus offline, you lose that you lose in that conversation every time because they're like, that's not how I think about the world anymore. That's yeah. not how people interact in the world anymore. Yeah, and like having a cohesive or consistent brand or message, you know, is very crucial in how to get that message across to Absolutely. wherever it is, offline, online. Um, so direct mail, I guess people are still, you know, <laughs> wanting to get in that space. Is it is it service or, I mean, service-based or like financial? I know you said you meant a couple of verticals or what type of successes do you see uh, within the vertical on direct mail? In direct mail, it's, it's typically a direct response marketer. Mm -hmm. Somebody who's at the bottom of the funnel um, looking to, you know, put an offer in front of a consumer and get acceptance, but again, um, the way we look at the world now is that that's just one of many touch points and ways that you should be talking to a consumer. Um, a lot of a lot of financial institutions have great uh, luck in direct mail. A lot of retailers have um, luck in direct mail. But if they're not touching on all the other channels, um, whether it be addressable TV or connected TV, mm -hmm. um, programmatic display, um, direct publisher, uh, if they're not utilizing those channels as well, they're 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 probably not going to be long for their business. Yeah. Is there any aspect of the marketing funnel that you're like, you have to be doing this? And if you haven't been doing it already, you're kind of already behind. I mean, well, if they're, if they're not, if they're not in the programmatic display, yeah. if they're, if they're not there, then yeah. um, my expectation is that business is not doing well. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, I know you got to consult to try to get these people to understand all that stuff. Uh, so yeah, I guess uh, you mentioned your time at Experian. I know you don't want to get too much into the details and obviously Axiom, mm-hmm. but you were able to help build you know a company into like you know some pretty big success mm-hmm. rate and obviously some um, and uh, selling the company. How do you get to that level? How did you build an organization like that? Um, and help, you know, obviously get it to where it was. Yeah, Axiom was a really fun time for all of us. We all spent, that's kind of how we all came together was at that Is that how y'all end. met or? Well, we, we, Janice and I had worked From together Experian. at Experian as oh, well. Cool. And, and a number of us had worked at Experian. But where the, the team that is now at ALC came together as a group was at Axiom. Um, that was an interesting time. We inherited, uh, we, we got brought into the audience solutions division to turn that thing around. Um, it was uh, struggling uh, when we came in there in 2015. The business had been uh, declining at a, you know, at, at a pretty significant rate, especially to the considering the amount of profit that it was declining year over year. It had been declining for a couple of years, and we got brought in there to say, hey, you know, come in and help us figure out what we're doing wrong, get this business to flat, and then get it growing again. And um, it was a bit of a conundrum because when we got in there, and we were like, gosh, you know, the people are smart. Um, they've got good products, uh, clients, good clients. Clients seem to like them. You know, we couldn't, initially it wasn't obvious what the problem was. And then we started getting very prescriptive of how we looked at it. And what became obvious very quickly is that it was a business that had been built through a whole bunch of silos that didn't interact very well. We actually had a term of art for it. We called it disconnected execution. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, every every one of these silos inside their silo was doing their job very well and driving to their endpoint. But the, the crappy analogy here is imagine a, a football team where you have 11 players, they're all all pro. Um, they get up to the line of the scrimmage, uh, the ball snapped, and everybody runs a different play. Right? <laughs> yeah. The right side of the run, line is going to the right. Um, the quarterback and the running back running, running each other. You know, <laughs> the 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 receivers are all flooding one zone, so one group person can cover them, and then they all start fighting when they get back to the huddle. That's kind of what happened. And so what we did was was really simple: is we took um, the 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 business unit or the, the the leader of every function that was driving some sort of outcome, and we made sure they were all on part of the same team. So the head of engineering, head of delivery, head of product, head of sales. Um, but just as important, um, marketing, HR, and finance, probably the two most important functions, um, got them in a room, and we spent one day every single month driving to our three horizon strategies. So we created a strategy which said, what are we going to do to defend and grow our core business and our core clients that we have? Next, what, how are we going to extend those clients into the digital realm and then finally, what are the projects we should be working on for innovation for the three to five year horizon? Mm. And that strategy was directly connected with KPIs associated with every function that we were driving toward. And then every business or every unit leader, or every uh, department leader knew what everyone else was doing. Now it seems like, okay, one day a month for your leadership team to spend together in a room, that's like 5% of your time that you have in a month. That's an incredible investment. Um, but what we figured out pretty quickly was that if that 5% wasn't done right, the 95% didn't matter. Mm-hmm. And so that's all we did is we connected, and we, then the term of art changed to connected execution, 
where everybody knew what everybody was working on. The entire organization once a month got a readout. Here are your KPIs. This is what you're working on. These are your three horizons that you're working toward. And, and the strategies never changed. And it got everybody in the entire company, even if they were only taking six inch steps, they were all taking them together. And when you have 500 people stepping together, uh, the progress we made really quickly was was pretty astounding. We, I think we're all pretty proud of that time. And then, of course, there were a whole bunch of corporate things going on outside mm -hmm. of our control to arrange that into a platform and service company. But by the end, the profitability of that division was growing extremely well. Um, the, 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 the landing place, I think, couldn't have been better, landing inside of IPG, um, is, is a time I think we're all pretty proud of. Yeah, I mean, if that work hadn't been done, it wouldn't have set up the company so well for the sale to IPG, right? Yeah. And then, you know, it's it was interesting being part of a sale process. I'd never been part of a company that yeah. was sold it's like, like an, that. How was that, like year, year long? How long was that yeah, process? I mean, it, it, it takes a while because there's a lot of, you know, looking back on it, right? You, mm -hmm. At the time, you don't really understand why decisions are necessarily always being made the way they are. And then you look back, you say, oh, that makes a lot of sense. So you know, doing things like reorganizing, figuring out what is going to be sold versus what's not going to be sold, um, and kind of where people will fall within that, and um, making sure that, you know, the some of the stuff, the improvements and things that Andy's referring to were, you know, at the right time. And then, um, you know, just classic kind of corporate development M&A activities to, mm -hmm. to make sure that, um, you know, you, you sell the company appropriately. And I agree with Andy, I think, you know, I'm sure we can all speculate who other potential buyers might have been, but I feel like IPG was a really good spot. I was there for about another four or five months after the sale, and it seemed like it, you know, was a good cultural fit and mm -hmm. a good synergistic um, fit in terms of the the future vision of both companies. So yeah, it's I'm not always for them it's not always about the money, right? It's yeah. about what's a good fit, you know, and you're shopping for them as much as they're shopping for you. Yeah, so. That's right. Well, yeah, so it really sounds like it just came down to transparency, um, you know, openness, and obviously having, a, a you, in this case, three uh, realistic goals to go after and seem that changed the culture around. Sounds really simple. It does, right? It does. I know, it does, but it's surprisingly, you don't always see that in a lot of companies. You know, a really clear strategy, alignment around that strategy, and then constant communication. I mean, we, it seems basic. We stick to it. Basic, um, so... Uh, I started at ALC in November of last year. Um, the the strategy was defined, um, and every single month we still do the exact same thing here as we've done at any other company. We get together once a month. We uh, walk through our three horizon strategy with our team. Um, they see progress toward the goals associated with each one of those three horizons, um, and we. We have not changed that strategy since we walked in the door. And it's, chances are right, it sounds simple, right? <laughs> right? Create a strategy, stick to it, communicate with your employees what that strategy is, and, and then tell them what their success criteria are as well. I mean, mm. that's really important. And people then, you know, generally self-select. You know, what am I going to do? Am I, how, which direction am I go, going to go? And that... There's always a point for every employee during the process. It happened at Experian, it happened at Axiom, and, and we're seeing it now, where once the employee starts to get comfortable with being uncomfortable, a change is gonna happen, um, and it's good, right? Change is good, it means we're gonna grow. It means that 10 years from now, 20 years from now, we're not only gonna be a going concern, but we're gonna be relevant. We're not gonna be talking 
just about one thing we offer our clients, we're going to be solving big problems for those clients. That, when you've been doing something a certain way for a couple of decades, that's uncomfortable. But then when you get over that hump, you're like, gosh, this is really liberating. Like, mm-hmm. I, I'm important, you know? And, and that's, that's what we strive to do in every stop of the way is make sure everybody understands this is what's asked of you. This is why it matters. Mm-hmm. Not only to, you know, it, people always talk about the client experience right. and what's good for the company, but try and explain it in terms of what's why it's good for that employee, that associate, how it's going to help them achieve whatever goal they have. And that goal might be, I'm trying to send a kid to college. It might be, I'm trying, I have massive career aspirations of my own. Maybe it's, you know, I want to be able to feel like I have a job for five to 10 years and I can pay my bills. I mean, everybody has different motivations. Well, mm-hmm. and when the employees understand and are, you know, happy, they're going to be uh, providing even better service to the customers. Oh, absolutely. Right? Yeah. So it reflects that way. Yeah. It all works together. Yep. I, it's, it's, it's interesting to hear you say, you know, you have to constantly set some goals, set some almost just parameters, you know, you're just laying the guidelines down for them to succeed. Uh, some businesses out there listening to this might go, well, God, I've tried to implement something like this and I don't know, maybe I don't have the proper leadership in place. Like you said, you have those 11 silos and, you know, but I mean, is there ever been times where you have to, you know, I'm, you know, kind of like, Hey dude, this is how it's going to be. <laughs> what's, what's the deal? I mean, it, it, or how do how would somebody overcome that if they're listening to this and they're running their business? Well, the, I think you, you hit it the nail on the head. The first thing you got to do is you got to define and set the expectation, mm-hmm. because if you don't do that, then it is impossible to hold someone accountable. But people tend to hold themselves accountable if, if they know what it is that is expected of mm-hmm. them, and so that for us anyway hasn't been too much of a problem because we're very prescriptive about how we manage this process. Mm-hmm. Um, but it. Uh, been at it a long time ago. I you know? think that, that, <laughs> I mean, that's the difference, though. Yeah. So what I've seen in other companies previous to this is, uh, you know, it is a bit of a fit and a start because the you may hire this unbelievable executive from, you know, an industry that you think is going to come in and help change your business, and then they're not a cultural fit. Mm-hmm. So there are challenges. I think the difference with us and why we're all still working together is that we have developed very uh, solid, trusting working relationships. We know how each other work, and the fact is we don't have any of that, well, political maneuvering mm-hmm. and, and, and things that can cause that execution to, to fall off. I think it, that, that's what's really unique here. And that's yeah. why I think you, if you look at our backgrounds, you'll see a lot of us came from the same places. Yeah. We, you know, and it's nice to be, I think, you know, in the point in your career where you've developed those kinds of working relationships and you can have opportunities to continue to work together. It just cuts a lot of the um, challenges that other companies may be facing out. Yeah. Sounds like you know the people just as well. You maybe know your family. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's well, that's where. Well, pretty much, it's your work family. I know yeah. it we is. Spend a lot of time together. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I'm sure the family's like, oh god, really? Getting, getting <laughs> yeah. Flights canceled. Having to take trains. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. We've, we've yeah how's that? I mean, <laughs> managing all that. I mean, obviously with family, and um, I mean, has that been a struggle or something that just you personally are like, well, oh, god, man, I just, you know, I'm, I'm missing this or that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's is it tough to balance the work? 
life with the personal life? <laughs> I'll go first. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I mean, yeah. I've always been lucky enough that I've been able to work and do what I like to do. I wouldn't be doing it if I didn't like it. Um, but I've had moments of, you know, guilt for sure. Like, mm-hmm. oh, my kids are going to turn out, you know, something's going to be wrong. And I, keep, <laughs> I check in with my husband. And I'm like, are our kids okay? Yeah, our kids are fine. Okay, good. We're all good. Um, but for me, it's, uh, I've been lucky. I have a great husband. He's an amazing mm-hmm. partner and he doesn't travel. So it kind of works with our jobs that, you know, we've been able to, to figure it out. And, um, there's only a few times I can remember where I felt really bad for missing something, yeah. but most of the time I really didn't. And you just, most of the companies I've worked for really, um, support if you can't be somewhere for personal reasons and so you just you just balance you do balance yeah. it you know you work it out you got to pick your partners just like you do pick your partners well right yeah, you, do. <laughs> yeah. you know though I, I never really had made the connection until um, until just you asked that question but I look at it, actually all of us would probably say that exact same thing about our spouse everyone on our management team everybody's really tight with their spouse um, we all travel quite a bit um, but th- there's this, this, because we're so close with each other, when someone needs to be home, there's never a question. There's never a, yeah, you, wait, no, you, you have to skip that thing at home. Like, we trust each other enough to say, well, you know, I've got to be home for this, you know, holiday program or a graduation or, a, you know, some, whatever it might be. But even smaller things like, um, you know, there's an event at school, everyone, is allowed because of our trust with each other to manage that and so I think that helps quite a bit you know my wife knows if there's something she wants me there for I'm gonna be there and no one at work is gonna challenge that and my work family knows that um, I know how to load balance when something is really important at work that I just have to be there for and my wife understands that and we do that um, and that's I think allows us to move a lot faster uh, than than most teams. I, I think that's probably one of the the weird connectors because our families are so supportive of what we do. Our team of of leaders in our company, we move pretty darn fast. Very fast. Yeah. 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 That's good. No, I, I guess connections. You, know? you have to. I mean, you have to know everybody's ins and outs, and I think that's that's a great thing. That I mean, you can't live in an environment at work and not know how you know, your coworkers, mm-hmm. you know, what, what their life is or what yeah. they're going through. Um, with that said, I'd love to ask y'all, I mean, what, what changes you're maybe seeing in the workforce now that we're getting even Gen Zers mm-hmm. come in and, um, yeah. and how that environment has changed. I know y'all were in the tech side of things when things took a drastic turn, uh, with way, say the Google open, you know, layouts or just culture or personal life being a, a kind of a more focus to business, you know, how has that been managing? How, how has that been managing all the, you know, different changes within the work environment? Oh, uh, gosh. You know, I, I think if I answer this question the way I want to answer it, somebody's going to say, oh, you just became your dad, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but um, quite frankly, uh, diversity, whether it be cultural or, you know, age diversity, it's good. It's always good, right? Because think about it like the the people who are millennials and 24 and 25 who are coming into our company or that we work with that maybe don't understand uh, the way we did things 20 years ago and how you worked your way through a company versus how it's done today um, those are the people who are going to be buying the products and services that our clients are selling right so you got you better know them right you better mm-hmm. understand them you better know how to talk to them you better know how to interact 
Um, it's, it is, it's, gosh, it's a lot different. Uh, it used to be very structured. Gosh, when I started working, you wore a tie to work. Yeah. Like even at a data company, right? <laughs> Uh-huh. Well, I was at a credit bureau one time. Right, we were at a credit bureau. Right? It's like office space. So, but, yeah, right. you know, right. so I, I don't think it's any different than any other generational change that has ever happened. You know, people are frustrated with people that don't necessarily understand. They're into different things. Um, but you better be good at it, right? Mm-hmm. You better be able to deal with pretty much everyone in the workforce because the reality is the the baby boomers, you know, the people, they're all at the end of their career and there was a whole bunch of them. Right, and there are jobs, jobs, jobs that are getting filled with younger and younger people at higher and higher levels. You better be able to manage that age diversity. I think, I think we do, do pretty well. I mean, yeah. we've worked I at companies that have huge digital presence. For sure, so. and I think it's also interesting to see how the college courses have changed mm-hmm. um, that feed those people into our industry. You know, when you didn't used to have these you know, detailed cr- tracks on analytics in college, right? Mm-hmm. You had, uh, when I went, it was business. You had business yeah. track or your medical track or engineering, you know, general. Now you have these very finite um, classes and courses that you can take around data and technology, database technology, analytics. So in some ways, you know, we just have to continue to, to bring those people in and continue to give them opportunities to apply that and learn then the the you know commercial side of things not yeah. just the academic or and it's difficult for you know even the millennials to come in and realize oh wow this is how the the real world is yeah. <laughs> and there always is that 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 shock initially when when yeah. folks come in um in, in the 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 biggest change though i think is that the world is always on now always on mm-hmm. and so when when i was 25 I could expect to take a two-week vacation, and it would be a two-week vacation. Yeah. Now, anywhere in the world, you're always on. You're right. right? And it, but it's not because somebody's put that barrier on you. It's not like the company's like, hey, we're, you need to be on. It's because you mentally yeah. have just like, you want to be on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It's crazy. Connected. I yeah. don't even, you. I went, did a two-week Europe trip, and I was still on my phone. I don't want, the worst thing I would have ever have done would have been to come back to a thousand emails. Right. Yeah. So I was like, no, I'm going to manage this, look at it every day, but you know, filter stuff away, to respond where I need to. So you're right. You're never really like disconnected, which can be a problem. I don't know. Yeah. We'll see the results of that one day. <laughs> yeah. Uh, th- there'll probably be a reset at some point, yeah. but uh, I don't think it's happening. Have we hit that soon. button yet? I don't know. Uh, I, don't, I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. Yeah, no. no. I don't think so either. So at, y- y'all work in the data side collection. Obviously, data collection is a very hot button topic these days. Um, you might have clients ask you, you know, hey, you know, with this data, you know, like, obviously the Cambridge Analytica and there's that stuff and, yeah. and restrictions going on with GDPR and even California and a lot of other states having legislation being approved. Um, how are you managing that with your clients and really kind of, you know, talking to them about, Hey, this is, this is how, you know, we work with people and how we, how we, how we manage and obviously operate the data. Yeah. I mean, well, you know, we have been in the data industry for a long time. So having different regulations and privacy initiatives isn't really all that new. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's do not mail, do not call, you know, we've had a number of these things come up over the years. And so I guess, uh, from our internal perspective, we really don't see any of these as being, you know, game changers mm-hmm. or, you know, big things to be afraid of. We think it's probably good. I mean, the more consumer transparency and, and notice and 
um, disclosure and opportunity to opt out is a good thing, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you take the flip side of that, we have a lot with CCPA. We have a lot of clients who are very freaked out about it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they don't. It, it's complicated law. It's not written very well. Yeah, I. If we've gone through that a couple times. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. it's changing. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. even here at the last hour, potentially some changes. So. It is daunting for a lot of these companies who don't have a chief privacy officer or, you know, they have maybe outside legal counsel to kind of figure out what um, what to do. So we have actually in the last uh, several months been trying to provide our clients with some guidelines and ideas of where, you know, to go for some best practices, things that they can do. I mean, fortunately, there's a lot of good software options out there to manage all of the consumer experience around mm-hmm. opting out and disclosure and, you know, verification. Mm-hmm. So you can give them the categories of data you collect and all that. Yeah. So, there, you know, that's an investment. It will cost companies some money, but there are some software programs now. These companies are probably going to make a killing over the next couple of years. Um, that help. Maybe time to get in. <laughs> yeah, I know exactly. Buy some stock. Yeah. Um, but they will help with that, you know, so, and it, you know, have the the legal expertise and mm-hmm. everything to help companies navigate. So that's that's one option. And I do think that, um, you know, the one interesting comment I've come across with clients is saying, "Well, I'll just, you know, just won't. I'll just suppress all my, you know, activities as it relates to California." And I said, well, you can do that, but what are you going to do when it's Nevada? What are you going to do when it's, you know, New York or whatever? So I think that the sooner people tackle it, the better. Um, and then ultimately hoping, we hope, for federal re- regulation will be the best way to go, right? Something standard across the right. U.S. Um, but that could be, you know, another year or two out. So Well, yeah, if anybody watched Cambridge Analytica uh, hearings um, or with the Facebook hearings, then you would know that there's quite a ways that Congress needs to catch up, yeah. <laughs> but uh, they, at least our, our nation. nation. They, they do, they struggle a bit understanding the space. Mm-hmm. Um, so t- people tend to hunker down a little bit. We actually, it we're kind of, uh, I wouldn't say looking forward. Nobody's looking forward to it, but we know this will be an advantage for us mm-hmm. just because, Chance was pointing this out. I remember the first legislation that was going to kill all marketing was the Telecommunications Act of 1996, mm-hmm. right? And then it was, I don't know if it was GLBA in 2001, I think it was, and then it was Shelby after mm-hmm. that, then it was Do Not Mail, and Can't Spam, COBA. And my, my point is that, that there's never going to be a time when there will be less regulation than there is today. You better know how to navigate that space. You better know how to be able to interact in a privacy compliant way, mm-hmm. how to have proper data security and governance, how to make sure that you have compliance programs that meet not only the consumer expectation, but the government's expectation and your client's expectation. Um, and, and so we, we kind of invite it. We're like, yeah, bring it on, because what it's going to do is it's going to clean out the... Some industry. of the other, yeah, yeah. people We're, who are... Well, that's what we saw in Europe, right? Yep. I yeah. mean, we saw a lot of companies that were, you know, doing things kind of in the gray mm-hmm. and ending up going away, which then leaves uh, an opportunity for, for the white hat type companies to continue operating and capturing more share. And I mean, like Andy said, you, you know, luckily for us, we are a data company, and so making sure that we... Uh, collect and work with companies and vet them properly and assess their privacy mm-hmm. policies and what they're doing and choose who to work with and not work with. I mean, luckily the team here has so much expertise that that you know that's a process that isn't um, new or different for us. It's right. just best practice. But uh, a lot of companies out there 
don't even have a clue how to do that, right? Because there's a lot of newer, you know, kind of newer digital data companies. Yeah, and I think, you know, especially with, you know, the the crazy um, you know, data privacy people out there. I mean, a lot of people don't know how to actually Can we even. Can you on that? Yeah. <laughs> I said it. You guys didn't. Um, no, the conspiracy I, the, theorists. No. Um, I mean, no, it's, it, it's, it's, you know, there's, there's people out there that definitely do think that, you know, the big brother's watching, but you know, but yeah. all, but by all means you've selected to purchase the phone. You've selected to, to download the app. You've selected to use certain websites. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it is giving consumers a little bit more control now, but to see how much of a drastic shift there will be, will be, I guess, you know, we'll see. And I think that's exciting for y'all to look at yeah, too. To, but to bring it back to like, you asked me when I started in the industry, remember that, that map that I used to have to be able yeah. to print out cost me 50 bucks. Right, yeah. so that'd be the equivalent of paying for an app today four dollars a month, right? Yeah, and that Google Map that you have is free, and there is there's always a, a, a value exchange mm-hmm. between the consumer and the provider of whatever content or service they're getting, and we want to make sure that we're properly and in a in a compliant way managing that in- exchange of information between whether it be data providers, data collectors. Audience uh, movements, or you know, um, the the digital audience distribution, audience creation, things like that. So, I, I think that um, it's okay uh, that there's going to be more re- uh, more regulation and more legislation, mm-hmm. um, at least for companies like us. I think it's going to be mm-hmm. okay. Yeah, um, yeah it's going to be interesting to see. Okay I think there'll be a little flurry of consumer opt-outs following January, but I think it'll. Mm-hmm. My my guess, based on past experience and other laws mm-hmm. it's really a very very small amount of consumers that really you know go the extra mile yeah. to you know opt out and y'all have a you live in california are you in this uh, you're in the southern calendar yeah. but y'all do have an office in what san diego or san francisco yeah okay san francisco. um well you'll be right on the forefront california's gonna be a nice little beta tester for right. for the rest of the nation. I'll be very upset when I stop getting offers and things that I want. Yeah, right. Well, that's the thing is like I always tell I love the value exchange aspect. I'm going to use that in the future if you don't mind. Um unless you already got that like no. trademarked like no. Le- LeBron's trying to get Taco Tuesdays trademarked. Uh <laughs> but um no, I I always tell people is you know, I'm I'm getting ads that are more relevant to me. And in 10 15 years ago I wasn't mm-hmm. and that's more for me. I've been definitely been somebody who sees something and advertised to, and I, they know me better than probably I know me. Um, you know, so that's, that's, that's not a bad thing. Um, but I'm on the marketing side, so I'm definitely not the right person to ask. I got a little bit of a biased opinion. Um, so lastly, before we wrap up, I would love to just, um, ask you where you see, you know, obviously your company going in the future, but just where you see the space changing. We've already talked a little bit about it, but maybe what changes you maybe see, um, happening within the space. Yeah. Well, let me talk about what I think we're gonna do. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the things that we've noticed at all of our past stops is that although data always drives a value proposition, whether it be inside of a CRM system, inside of media, more data always creates a better performance for whatever it is you're trying to accomplish in your interaction with your customer. Um, there, are these, there are massive barriers to allowing for that data movement to happen. And we exist to exponentially increase the usage of data across all parts of the enterprise. We're going to knock down all those barriers one by one. Um, And typically, 
those barriers limit the ability for an enterprise to use data. Mm. So what, what we see happening is that more and more disruptive companies like ours will come to the forefront to start knocking down those barriers. And there, there, there are many, um, but that's, that's what I see happening. And what I, I, I'm gonna see, I think you're gonna see some of the more legacy businesses start to struggle a little bit in this new world. Is it being integrating? Is it trying to like get rid of, say, like say for uh, the business owner or somebody to integrate within their CRM data? Or like, how do you, I guess you're gonna have to overcome, you have to really develop some softwares, right? That like come. Well, so, so we've actually defined them, they're, they're four barriers. Uh -huh. um, they're technical barriers. Um, you guys experienced some of these mm -hmm. at P1, right? Yeah, yeah. Moving data across all the different platforms and getting a true representation of the consumer, a one-to-one -one view across the entire landscape. It's almost impossible to do right now. Um, that, that's just one view of technical barriers. The other ones that exist, everything's sitting on legacy technology, right? Most of the data companies that own information on consumers live in a world that was built for direct mail. Um, so massive technical barriers associated. And we've been able here, which is so exciting, is we don't have the technical debt or barriers. So mm -hmm. we've been able to do that, you know, from the ground up the way it needs to do to enable the stuff yeah. that Andy's talking yeah. about. Build everything cloud-based with mm -hmm. software. Yeah. Um, the other thing that's going to happen is that, um, you know, you hear companies talk about data lakes, you hear companies talk about CDPs. Mm -hmm. What's really going to happen is that brands are going to insource all of those services. You know, they're not going to pay someone else to do. It. They're going to bring it in house. Right. But they're not going to have necessarily the expertise to do all those data operations associated with bringing all those services in house. Um, so that'll be another big change that you'll see is that data identity and we'll call it the data operations and software will all be performed inside of a client's environment by someone else. Hmm. So. Uh, the way we would interact is we would we would take our identity graph, our entire repository of data information, and we we hand it to the brand, and then we'd say we're going to work inside of your cloud infrastructure, and we'll do all the data operations on your on data operations on your behalf, and that skips over this whole you've heard this term CDP, skips over that stuff. Wow. I think you're going to see that happen, and when that happens all sorts of other barriers are going to get knocked down, specifically economic barriers. The value and use of data is going to change. Yeah, and the challenge that a lot of traditional data companies have is that they've you know, had a certain pricing model and economic model, and they can't go and change that dramatically, or they'd have a bunch of clients that would then come back and say, mm. uh, how are you changing my pricing that I've been paying for years? So better aligning the use of data for digital and offline use versus just being offline and then incrementally charging wow. people for. So Let me explain that. Yeah. Um, financial institution A licenses a data set and an identity graph for a million dollars a year. And they believe it's for any use, any marketing application, any uh, type of audience creation. And they go try and activate that in a programmatic platform, what happens? Well, they pay again, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. They have to pay again, right? There's this ad tax. What is it? What's the stat? Um, yeah, it was a one third of the spend uh, is in ad tax, basically going in. Everybody's yeah. getting a bite of the apple yep. from the plot, you know, DSPs to mm -hmm. the analytics companies, the data providers. Yeah, so, I think that's yeah, got to change. Yeah, that'll have to change. And when they insource, a lot of that ad tax goes away. Yeah. Right. So they're 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 massive barriers that. Um, 
to the movement of data that'll get knocked down. But you know, we talked about the economic barriers. The value and uses is way out of whack. Um, most data companies charge because it was set up in the direct mail environment, where whereby the data, the media, the media mm -hmm. that they were op optimizing against was a mail piece that cost like two bucks or a, a catalog that cost like fifteen dollars, something like that. Um, the data to optimize that media might cost 10 cents. Well, now you um, get into digital media and you see, um, you see companies trying to charge 10 cents for data on media that's you know, a, a fraction of a penny. The, the value exchange is upside down. So yeah. I think you'll start to see that change as well. Yeah. We're actually going to accelerate that. Yeah. <laughs> and I think the one last one that's important to talk about, too, we started the conversation earlier about service. So a lot of companies have pivoted to more of a software as a service model. They're higher, you know, they get higher valuations. It's more of a tech play, but they've lost sight of what clients, you know, i.e. brands mm -hmm. and marketers really need, which is help understanding the data and using the data. Mm -hmm. um, and so that service component is another thing that we think is, is a big gap in the market. Yeah, you guys have solved this. Like yeah. you, you understand that, that the brands that you serve, they need a little handholding, yeah. right, through the process. They don't necessarily, they, they want to control some stuff themselves, but they really need you to help perform those operations for them. And I don't think that's going to change, but most companies in ad tech are unwilling to perform that service. Mm -hmm. It's different than professional services. It's different than consulting. It's just a little light touch to help, you know, push it that last mile. Yeah. Right? You guys see that, right? Yeah. No, totally. I mean, it's, it. you, half of what we do is educating and, and reporting on how do we take this data, learn from it and apply it to a marketing strategy, which yeah. is the entire thing that we do. Yeah. So no, it's, it, it's ever changing and that's exciting to hear um, that a lot of those barriers you're looking to t tackle because that's something that in our industry and some people who are like, what are you talking about right now? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's something we deal with on a regular yeah. basis. And the client does too. Um, on the back end, just not, they get a lot of data thrown at them and they don't know what to do with it. And that's going to be a big game changer, especially if we can connect the dots. For sure. Mm -hmm. So, well, we thank you for joining us. This is a lot of great info. And uh, join us here on the queue. But uh, I guess, yeah, you can find you guys on, do you have Twitter, Instagram? Or Just go to <laughs> ALC.com. Yeah, cool. Right? ALC.com. Easy enough. We do have, but yes. We have Twitter, yeah. Facebook, yeah. All that LinkedIn. stuff. MySpace. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Not that one. No, 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 no. That was one of the ones that didn't work out. But no, thank you for joining us here on the queue. Thanks. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Q1 Media. Q1 Media partners with agencies and brands all across the nation for all their digital marketing needs, whether it's CTV, OTT, location-based mobile device ID targeting, search engine marketing, targeted display, any research and data that you need, whatever it is, Q1 Media can help with your marketing efforts. Please check out Q1 Media's website at q1media.com. That's Q, the number one, media.com. You can view case studies, examples of our work, uh, or just check out more episodes of the podcast, The Q, Conversations in Digital Media.